0: Welcome to part 2 in Samson's Secret series, where I'll go over part 3, 4, and 5 in my blog series. A Swapped Spouse, An Escalation in Edom, and Revenge in Remethlehai, Judges chapter 15. I wonder how many days passed before Samson decided to return to his wife. Was he bringing the goat as a token of peace, to make up with his wife. We know what was really on his mind. The desire for sex overpowered his grudge against her for betraying his trust. When he arrived for the visit, her father prevents him from entering. I thought you utterly hated her, he exclaims. I gave her over to your companions. What kind of companion threatens to kill your wife and family if she doesn't betray you? I would say a companion in name only. Apparently, the father was clueless of the whole conspiracy and pressured or pressured into giving his daughter away to make peace. Or he was—he just wanted his daughter to be happily married to someone. Where did he get the idea that Samson hated her? Well, maybe it was from her. She made the same accusation in chapter 14, verse six, 16. Maybe it was when Samson called her a cow in 14 verse 18. Maybe it was when he didn't show up for weeks on end, or all the above. I can't really blame him for his conclusion. Quote, "This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm." Unquote. Samson wasn't interested in her prettier sister offered by the father. Samson wanted justice so-called. Yet, he admits right in front of them that he did indeed harm them before. Did they know what he was talking about? Did they know that they were in the presence of a serial killer? One thing we do know, Samson knew, and apparently it was still on his conscience. Foxes, farms, and fields on fire. How long would it take you to catch 300 foxes? I would guess a learning curve would put me at zero for a while, and maybe I could get good within maybe three months. Aren't foxes smart? Yet Samson outsmarts the foxes. Surely it would take him at least a week to gather up all the foxes, and he'd have to let them all go in one night. Samson releases the foxes into the fields to burn the standing grain. Then he burns the gathered grain, burns whatever the foxes missed in the field, and finishes off the olive orchards. This was a scorched earth response, literally. Was Samson emboldened because of his physical power? Would he have done this even if he didn't have any extraordinary strength? Economically speaking, the loss of crops tips the balance of power away from the Philistines. Whatever is grown by the Hebrews is now much more valuable. The net effect of less grain is an increase in the value of the remaining grain in the hands of the holders thereof. Now the Philistines had to buy from others. Notice the Philistines didn't come after Samson, but instead, when finding out it was Samson who burned down the crops, took revenge on the ones who motivated him to do so, the family. His response shows a realization of the drastically different code of ethics between the two parties. Quote, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that, I'll quit, Samson declares. This is Samson's appeal to justice. Is he reluctant to fight? Is he just trying to justify his actions in his own mind? Why did he care about the family who had betrayed him? Was he planning on getting his wife back? Burning down all the crops indiscriminately seems like an overreaction. Were the fields shared, and therefore the family couldn't be targeted by Samson, and so he needed to burn the entire farming commune? Though ye have done this, yet will I be avenged of you, and after that I will cease, Samson declares. This is the second time Samson promises to stop if they don't retaliate. Revenge is important to Samson all the way to the end, as we'll see. Is it justified? If you're keeping score, however, Samson is ahead by a lot, or several lots, pun intended, and 30 Philistine lives. Samson doesn't count those lives in his reckoning. His loss is one wife who betrayed him and her family. Before the decimation of the fields, he would have been more than even, He kills 30 men and loses his wife in the time he is away. It is almost like Yahweh was settling the score for those lives, but Samson is using a different accounting system. Yahweh is using Samson like a tool. Samson kills an unnumbered amount of Philistines and leaves for Edom. Samson has single handedly started a war. The Philistines are setting up camp and spreading. Judah Intelligence picks up on this military movement and sends out scouts to find out what's going on. When they find out what the Philistines want, they send 3,000 men to find him. When they find him, they ask him if he's aware that the Philistines, quote, rule over us. Quote, as they have done to me, so I have done to them, he retorts. Is that true, though? His narrative does not match the facts. Who drew blood first? Who made a bet that he knew he could make good on and then killed 30 men to fulfill? Samson knows the true score of things, but since he's gotten away with murder 30 times over, his conscience seems a bit dulled at this point. The truth is more clearly seen from their perspective. As he did to them, they did to him. He burnt their fields with fire. They burnt his family with fire. He kills a bunch of their people. Now they want to kill him. Clearly, from an objective view, justice seems to be on their side. Word must have gotten back to the Israelites of Samson's incredible strength, for they negotiated his transfer to the Philistines. Three thousand men do not need to negotiate with one man unless that knowledge is present. Fulfilling the prophecy in John, Joshua twenty three, ten, Samson kills one thousand men. Quote, with the jawbone of a donkey heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey I have struck a thousand men. This is the second bit of poetry Samson is recorded to have spoken. Although he glories in this victory, Samson appeals to Yahweh, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? This is the first record of Samson calling to the Most High. Samson has incredible supernatural strength, and apparently he can use it at any time, but he still feels that he has found the limit of this power, and now he's vulnerable. The only other time Samson calls upon the Lord, his request is the exact opposite. The chapter ends recording that Samson judged Israel twenty years. Is this one sentence the only honorable thing that can be said about him? It must be, for it's repeated at the end of the story as well. The first chapter in this story ends with good promising news. Samson was born to a woman who was barren. He grew up, and the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. The second chapter ends with tragic news. Samson's wife was given to his best man. The last two chapters of this story end with the most honorable thing that could be said of him. Not that he delivered his people from the hands of the Philistines. Not that he found favor with the Lord just that he held a public office for two decades. Part 4. Delilah, Dagon, and a Dark, Deadly Destiny. Judges, 16. A harlot and a hill before Hebron. Did Samson ever find another wife in those 20 years of judging Israel? It's not recorded, but we do know that he cozied up with a prostitute in Gaza, Did Samson have a habit of traveling and sleeping with prostitutes, or was this a one-time event? What was he doing in Gaza? Who knows? But the people there wanted to kill him. They waited all night at the gate to kill him in the morning when the gates were opened back up. How did they not hear him rip off the gates of the city? Here, Samson uses his power unprovoked, and this is the only time he uses his powers without killing someone or something. Notice he outsmarts them and avoids the conflict. Is there any doubt that Samson could have taken them? I think they were naive to think that they could have captured Samson, and yet, instead of engaging them, he left before the morning when they planned to engage him. I can imagine Samson thinking to himself, I still got it. Leaving the gates of the city on a hill for all to see was a spectacle to behold. Brian Greene's book, 48 Laws of Power, record Law of Power number 37 as Create a Compelling Spectacle. Samson sent a message to those who wanted to kill him. Not only am I much stronger than you, I am much smarter too. The law of power number 17 is applied here too. Keep others in suspended terror. Cultivate an air of unpredictability. Samson was also skilled with law number four always say less than necessary. Law number nine win through actions, never through arguments. Law number 15 crush your enemy totally. Law 28. Enter action with boldness. Law number 29, plan all the way to the end. Law number 30, make your accomplishments seem effortless. Law number 35, master the art of timing. Law 39, stir up the waters, then catch the fish. And law number 47, do not go past the mark you aim for. In victory, learn when to stop. Bounded and blinded, by his beloved. The only woman Samson is recorded to have loved is Delilah. Her name means weakened or delicate. The meaning of her name fits well within the narrative of the story as she weakens Samson and likely the only reason it is mentioned. He found her in the Valley of sork which means Valley of the Vine. This is another poetic irony, as Samson's Nazarite vow forbade him to partake of anything that came from the grapevine. The estimates of the amount of money, 1,100 pieces of silver, that Delilah was offered by the lords of the Philistine are all over the board. Also, as the value of the dollar continues to fall year after year and the price of silver fluctuates, calculations are imprecise by nature. That said, it may be close to about 7,000 from each lord. Samson wasn't a stupid man. The one thing he wanted to be known for was his intelligence. Even the question seems suspicious to me. Tell me the secret of your strength and how one might arrest you. Why would you want to know something like that, Delilah? Samson was pretty good at keeping secrets, He kept his encounter with the lion a secret. He kept the origin of the honey a secret. He only told his wife after a full week of harassment, and only when he thought it was safe. He kept his 30 murders a secret. I presume he kept his encounter with the prostitute a secret. Now, after all this time, no one knew the secret to Samson's extraordinary strength. The only way Samson could have known for sure is if he had shaved his head. Later, he He tells Delilah that, quote, no razor has ever touched my head. If that's true, there is one last way to conclude the secret, as we'll see later. Samson makes up an answer. Why should he worry that Delilah will ever find out he lied to her? The only way that she could find out is if she betrays his trust and tells someone else. Reality is much worse, however, as his very life is sold under contract. You have tricked me and told me lies, Delilah accuses. Was she better than a liar? Her whole relationship with Samson was a lie. She was a traitor, and the evidence was becoming clear. Why doesn't Samson leave? Was there any shred of doubt what was going on here? Again, Samson makes something up and Delilah herself finds new ropes that had not yet been used to tie him up. Until now you have mocked me and told me lies, Delilah accuses. Samson was in a toxic relationship and he knew it. Why didn't he leave? His was a one-way love affair. Was Samson bored with life? Was he suicidal? Was he so lovesick that he wanted something to be true that was so clearly not? Who was mocking whom? Delilah did not love Samson. She was essentially trying to kill him. Samson knew this without a doubt. As she pressed him day after day, his soul was vexed, to death. It sounds like Samson would rather die than to live without the illusion of love. Quote, a razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to Elohim from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak like any other man. This would only be apparent if Samson had broken all the other aspects of the Nazarite vow. Having long hair isn't the only instructions given in numbers. The first requirement of the vow states not to consume anything that comes from the grapevine. The second is not to cut hair. The third is not to go near a dead body, not even if a funeral for a family member. We know Samson broke the third one. According to the Nazarite vow found in Numbers 6, after both encounters with the carcass, Samson should have shaved his head and offered an offering according to the instructions beginning in verse 9. He also should have done this again after killing those 30 men. Again, he should have repeated this after the other conflicts in which he killed. If it's true that he had never shaved his head, we know that he didn't follow the instructions of the Nazarite vow. It isn't recorded that he drank wine or consumed anything from the grapevine, but by implication, it is very likely the case that he did. Samson had broken every part of the law except cutting his hair, and even in not cutting his hair, he had broken the instructions for that vow. Perhaps he had tested every aspect of the vow because he was curious to find out. We know he was curious enough to check out the deadline, it may be that Samson wasn't convinced that his hair had anything to do with his strength. Having, having technically broken every aspect of the vow by not cutting his hair when instructed to, as mentioned earlier, Samson likely believed that he, what he said. Quote, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. A party, pillars, passage parallels, and a parting prayer. When Samson was captured, the Philistines gave Dagon the credit for delivering him into their hands. Dagon was the god of crop fertility, so it is likely they believed Dagon was enacting his revenge for the crop Samson had de- destroyed, despite whatever time had passed. There are some interesting parallels between these final events and the instructions found in the end of the vow found in Numbers 6. The Nazarite was to be brought before the Tent of Meetings tabernacle, which would later be the temple. Samson was brought to the temple of Dagon. The vow-taker's head had to be shaved. Samson's was shaved. Among the final offerings found in the instructions for the Nazarite vow was a grain offering and a drink offering. There would have likely been a grain offering to Dagon as he was the god of crop fertility, and they were drinking and might have offered a drink as well. Samson's final act would include a culmination of at least seven elements that were well planned and executed. He waited until his hair grew back, however long that was. At least several months had to pass, verse 22. He picked an event that would likely kill the most number of the enemy, verse 23. He waited until they were well intoxicated and less likely to react to what he was doing, verse 25. He chose the strategic location to apply the demolishing move, verse 26. He chose a time when the party was at its apex of attendance, verse 27. He didn't try to execute the plan alone. He recruited divine help, verse 28. Finally, Samson didn't hold back effort, but carried out his plan with all of his strength. Verse 30, Judges 16, 28, and 30. And Samson called unto the Lord and said, O Lord God, remember me, I pray thee, and strengthen me, I pray thee, only this once, O God, that I might be once revenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. Let me die with the Philistines. It was always important to Samson that the score be settled. Even in his final hours, he wanted revenge for his eyes. As we saw in Part 3, Samson's scoring wasn't honest. His last prayer is the opposite to the first and only other prayer. In the first prayer, he wanted to live and not fall into the hands of the uncircumcised. This time, he did not want to live and wanted to die in the hands of the uncircumcised. Philistines. This may be the only suicidal request ever granted in the Bible. In other places, those who have prayed to die were talked out of their despair. Each account of Samson's strength escalates to an exponential level throughout the story, beginning with one line torn to pieces, then 30 men, then an unnumbered amount likely in the hundreds, then 1,000, then the taking of city doors, then, in his final act, with a combination of strength and strategy, single-handedly demolishing a temple to Dagon, resulting in 3,000 fatalities. His final revenge was not only more Philistine fatalities than the rest of his life combined, but the most difficult physically. What was Samson's secret? It was a lot of things. Samson's secret was the mission in his life which his father tried to know but likely never did. Samson's secret was the line and his physical strength. The thirty men that he killed, the prostitute in Gaza, the nearly complete transgression of all the requirements of his vow, and finally the secret of his strength. Samson, however, might just have one last secret— A secret that outlived him. Part 5 Samson's Secret Son, Judges 17 and 18. After the conclusion of Samson's life in chapter 16 of Judges, we find a story of a woman who just so happens to have lost exactly 1,100 pieces of silver. One chapter before this, Delilah received several installments of 1,100 pieces of silver one from each lord of the Philistines. If this woman was Delilah, then she would have had several sets of these payments likely in separate boxes. How much time might have passed? The woman makes an interesting statement when her son finds or returns the silver that was lost or stolen. She says, quote, Blessed be the son of the Lord, Yahweh. Now the house of Micah was not apparently Jewish or part of Israel why then were they worshiping Yahweh? Indeed, Micah's name means who is like Yahweh. One can easily imagine Delilah naming Samson's son by this name given the fact that the nation's God's temple was destroyed single-handedly by the man filled with the spirit of Yahweh. Her son was a young man by this time, at least 15 or more years than would have passed and the rest of the silver Um, could have been spent. Still, the lack of any mention of other silver doesn't necessarily mean that there wasn't any other silver. The mention of that particular amount in the story in any reader's mind would link it to Delilah, while also being relevant at the end of the story, detailing the origin of the statue that was kept with the people of the city of Dan, further implicating its historical value. Who was Micah's father? Micah has no recorded father. If this woman was Delilah and this man Micah was Samson's son, it would make sense that Micah would be her son of Yahweh, because Samson was of Yahweh. This also explains why Micah wanted a Levite priest to be a father to him. He wouldn't have known his father at all and wouldn't have had any way of comparison. Having a Jewish priest as a father figure might be the closest Micah could come to reconnecting with his Jewish roots. It is also odd that Micah would make this request as both individuals were young men. See verses 10 through 12. Yet as we see in Judges 18, verse 19, this phraseology may have been a common way of describing the relationship of any person or people uh, with a priest like the Catholic Church does today. There is a minor difference in geography between these two stories. Samson's encounter with Delilah takes place in the valley of Sorek, and this story takes place in the hills of the hill country of Ephraim. This is not a problem, however, because the two areas are only about a two days' journey apart, 50 miles. Why would Delilah move? After Samson's fateful and catastrophic revenge on the Philistines, destroying the temple of the nation's God and killing 3,000 people, any familial association with Samson would have had an extreme liability. If Delilah found out that she was with his child, neither she nor the child would be safe. If the Philistines found out that Samson had a son with Delilah, it is reasonable that they would want to eliminate any remnants of a son. He might make trouble for them someday. Moving out of the country to start a new life before others found out about the child would have been the obvious thing to do. This distance wasn't too much of a hardship for a woman of means to travel while also putting enough distance from her past, making any search not worth the effort. This is especially true if their memory of her continued as the heroine who turned in the Philistines most wanted and didn't turn into the woman who bore Samson's only son. The story is further connected with Samson in that Micah is used to help the Danites find land to settle in. In the process, the 600 militants that were sent by the tribe of Dan took the graven image made from the 200 pieces of silver made by Micah at the beginning of the story. They also persuaded the priest to come with them. Perhaps this story represents the Lord using these events to, one, obtain his tithe for Samson's ransom, 200 pieces of silver plus whatever was paid to the Levitical priests in silver, clothing and lodging. Two, returning his priest to his people. And three, providing a settlement for the Danites. Perhaps we can summarize this story as divinely executed poetic justice. Do you think Micah could have been Samson's son? If not, why not? Let me know. Thanks for listening to this series, and I look forward to doing more of these in the future. Make sure you subscribe on one of the platforms, including Spotify, and also uh, share this on uh, social media. Thank you.